Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Muslim Centric Podcast where we hope to educate, inspire and entertain on issues relevant to Muslim life and I'm your host Aman. In this final episode of our series on raising Muslim men and boys, we discuss the role of Muslim men in society and in the household. We cover topics such as why don't men talk about their mental health, how did the prophets deal with sadness and sorrow, and what are the roles and responsibilities as a Muslim son, husband and brother. Our guest is Scottish-born Islamic scholar Sheikh Amr Jamil of the iSyllabus programme. And thanks again to Radio Ramadan Glasgow where we first broadcast this series. And you can check out their website at rr365.co.uk. Please also have a look at our updated website, muslimcentricpodcast.com, which has inspirational resources and the Desert Island Gem series. Remember to rate, review, like and share wherever you get your podcast from as it helps others find the podcast. And follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and as I mentioned on our website. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Assalamu alaikum and you're listening to Radio Ramadan, 15.30am um, and the, uh, you, you're joining us for the show Raising the Next Generation of Boys and Men. We see differences in the development, milestones, habits, behaviours, physical, mental and emotional health and success rates between boys and girls. Girls develop language skills earlier, boys have more instances of diagnosis of ADHD, girls get better exam results, boys are less likely to have the same support networks that girls have and men are less likely to seek mental health services compared with women. So in light of all these issues, in this series we've been looking at the unique challenges associated with raising the next generation of Muslim boys and men. And in this final episode we'll be discussing the role of men in society and in the household. But before we really go on to that, um, we just want to kind of recap a little bit about the the previous episodes. Um, And uh, obviously my name's Abdul Wadud and I'm joined with Aman Durrani and uh, Sheikh Amr Jamil. So in the previous episodes, in, in the first episode, we were really talking about the whole idea about raising boys and girls and some of the kind of leftover, leftover discussions that we were having was just a couple of the questions that came to us was, how do parents balance raising boys with traditional expectations of manliness while still allowing them to express themselves creatively, have empathy and show affection in a healthy way? Sheikh Amr, do you have any thoughts about that? Alhamdulillah, Yeah, I mean, in terms of, as you know, children um, respond to praise for praiseworthy things and rebuke for things which you shouldn't be doing. So I think in terms of um, values, it's, uh, I mean, the way you do it is you praise them for the good values and encourage them in that. But I think in terms of them expressing themselves, um, if you look at the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in his in his life, we do have um, sides of his like kind of more emotional side coming out. Where, for example, I'm thinking when uh, Ibrahim, his son, died, he was crying, and Sahaba kind of thought, you know, Yar Sula, are you are you kind of um, disagreeing with what God's decreed? And he said, no, but this is from the the rahmah from the mercy that's in my heart. In other words, this is from my humanness. So we see examples of the Prophet ﷺ crying. Um, we know that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu used to cry in the prayer. He was very quite soft-hearted. In fact, Aisha uh, radiallahu anha, when, when the Prophet ﷺ asked about who should lead the prayer, um, she didn't agree with Abu Bakr leading the prayer because she said he's got a soft heart and he starts to cry. So, I mean, I think if you look at 
um, the, the life of the proselyte, which is why I think, and I said, I think at the end of one of the shows that this is what we really need, we need to be doing. We need to be exploring not just the Sira, which is like the events, but what's the sus kind of subsection of Sira, which is Shama'il, which is basically the Prophet as a person. How was it? How did he joke with his Sahaba? How did he laugh? Um, how did he um, get angry? How was he? How did he deal with animals? How did he deal with other people, children, leaders? Um, how was he as a person in terms of how was he as a spouse with his family? I think those those um, kind of books really give you an insight into how the Prophet Sallallahu was as a human being. And I think if that was taught maybe to uh, young boys from a younger age, they'd realise it is okay, you know, to to cry. It is okay to. Um, you know, ex- show expressions of sorrow and things like that. That doesn't detract from your your manliness in any way. Um, no, but well, one of the things we were talking about is uh, um, one of the outcomes of the second episode, which was talking a little bit more about the mental and emotional health in men. You had a, you had a point that you were just discussing just before we came into the studio, right? Yes. Yeah, so I think in terms of when men are depressed or have anxiety or worries they can manifest that in different ways and there's lots of sort of barriers around that and obviously we commented a bit about how men can find it more difficult to talk about their mental health and their emotional health and that can be a whole host of reasons I think ranging from society doesn't allow you know boys don't cry or men don't cry but also I think men sometimes will feel the in within the family they are the role to you know the strong one they have to hold it all together mm-hmm. And so when other people are struggling or there's a crisis or there's difficulties in a family unit, then, you know, they feel that, you know, I have to hold my emotions together because I have to be strong for the kids and for the wife. Um, but then unless the men have an outlet for that, then it kind of builds up and very much kind of internalize, you know, that anger and distress. And that can manifest in lots of different ways. So either men can then get more aggressive or angry, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of that is how they cope with it. Or maybe they become very reclusive and very shy and, you know, a bit insular as well. Or, you know, they can, you know, particularly outside the Muslim community, but within as well, you know, they'll turn to things like drink and drugs, etc. And, um, and, and, and I think these are all important aspects. So I think there's that idea of how men manifest their sort of distress and as boys. Because we're not in that culture of one is talking about our mental health or emotions, but also asking about it. Because mm-hmm. I think it's not just... Uh, a man talking about it but also in a way when you, you're a guy and you ask uh, you know your other friend how's it going you don't really want to know <laughs> it's kind of politeness you just want them to say yes fine and as soon as they say actually I've really had a hard time you know I can't sleep I'm really anxious I'm really low um, and I'm having thoughts of harming myself you kind of say well that's t- t- too much information you know so I think yeah, it's a two way street almost yeah, you don't want to you know. so kind of be able to respond to those kind of things so when they talk right? a lot about emotional intelligence as both as, as ourselves are we being introspective enough to understand actually this is you know what's going on for me but also being connected to others and when they're able to say actually you know I'm struggling or mm. I'm having a hard time yeah. that you give them the time to do that you say okay let's meet up for a kebab or let's meet up for a, you know whatever medium it is because men will you know more likely to open up in those sort of mediums as, yeah. you know I know a lot of people are hill walking now you know yeah, yeah. these are great opportunities to go and find an excuse almost to spend time with the person and, and hear about them so I think it's, it's thinking a bit creatively because 
men will you know also are affected by mental health issues we even know like things like depression people think postnatal depression is just for women actually after you've had a baby about 1 in 10 men can have mental health difficulties after their wives had a baby mm. and so that's again a very common thing mm-hmm. which you know it's difficult enough for women to talk about postnatal depression but for a man to say it because it signifies or are they weak or actually one thing i'm really keen to hear from you is where when people have mental health issues the you know the the people that are not informed they will say look it's it this correlates with your lack of iman so for example you know you're depressed means you need to pray more or you, you know you you, mm. you you know you've done something wrong and this is god punishing you so uh, i'd be really interested to hear your thoughts around that I because think, i think um uh, well i would i don't think we'd say it's depression but if you look at the prophets and their stories they certainly um went through bouts of feeling very sad if you can think of the story of yaqub alayhi salam with yus with uh, yusuf um you know if you if you look at the description of it in the quran um he he kept weeping until he went blind um so that's that's quite severe mm. um and then if you look at also the prophet sallam we actually call it the year of sorrow the year that his wife passed away and abu talib passed away so i think um and they're the best of of all people so i think and that's also a, a point for people who are going through difficult times to to look to the prophets and see that they went through difficult times as well and what is the solution and the solution obviously was that they turned to to god um and in fact even in surah yusuf he says i don't complain to anyone apart from you he's talking to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um so there is there is that kind of education process going on there but and you, when you do feel like that and everyone will feel like that it's not like uh, i mean everyone's going to have ups and downs and that's why the hadith says al imanu yazidu wa yanqus iman goes up and down um so that's a natural thing you're not always going to be on top of the world um you're not always going to be at the bottom of the world as well it goes up and down you have these and this is the 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 nature of this world this nature of this world is it's full of trials and tribulations dunya sajnul mu'min hadith says the 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 world is a prison for the believer um so i think um we can't just equalize it and just say De- depression equals low iman it doesn't necessarily mean that the other thing is that you've got to understand that everyone's um situations different from the other person um somebody of of faith but if they put if they put through like severe um you know torment if you look at think of the rohingya muslims or you think of the muslims in china you can't say that's you know you're feeling sad because your iman's low is because of the the, the severity of what they've been um, uh, exposed to so i think that's a that's not a, a automatic thing but certainly um obviously that we have a we have a, a ruh we have a, a soul um not just our physical body and the soul the nourishment of the soul is the dhikr of allah the members of allah so just like if we don't feed the the body it gets malnourished the same thing happens with the soul which is why we so feel so much better in ramadan because we're doing a lot more quran we're doing more dhikr and so on um so certainly dhikr certainly salah um any act of of worship um connecting to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala any form is definitely going to um help that person is absolutely no doubt about it and if the person is wanting to get back on track but they don't want to pray they don't want to remember allah mm. then you have to understand well your soul is going to be malnourished so there's going there's going to be a imbalance between your body and your soul so if you're feeling like that then 
you know, it, it's, it's natural that you're going to feel, you're not going to feel great. In fact, um, uh, the nature of sinning itself, um, sinning, um, and I'll, I'm, I've, I've been reading tafsir this, this Ramadan, so alhamdulillah, uh, just, I've, I've got Surah Nisa now, so I'm, I'm going about half a, half a juz a day, but um, it's just interesting, like how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in some of the verses talks about how um, the, the, the people who um, went against the prophets, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would, obviously punishment hereafter is going to happen, but also in this world, they would feel like fear, they would feel like all these negative emotions. So there is a link between sinning and feeling bad. Um, sinning is not going to make you feel good, you know, and uh, doing Quran, doing dhikr um, is, is going to make you feel good. So there is some uh, connection. But I think it's dangerous to just say, you know, if you're if you're going through that, if you're if you're finding it difficult to deal with that thing, then that's that, that's because you have low iman. Because a lot of these people are are people that pray, that go to the mosque, um, but they're just struggling. They're just going through that difficulty, and I think they can find solace in the stories of the prophets. Sheikh, you're obviously very involved with Unity Family Services, so a lot of people access you through that. We support individuals and families, etc. Do you get more men or female contacting you, and why do you think that is? Um, do I get more or more females or more men? I think um, I get a. I would say probably slightly more women hmm. than men, um, but you'd be amazed. A lot of me because I'm a man. A lot of men do come forward. I think the other th- the other key thing, which um, when you were talking about men don't have that outlet. I think traditionally what happened was um, you had the concept of the um, spiritual sheikh or the the murabi or even in a village say like the the kind of village head. Um, so if people had like problems, personal problems, marriage problems, a lot of the times, yes, they maybe not talk to other men, but they would they would talk to the spiritual guide, which in most cases was a man. So they would be offloading to somebody. And he would kind of give them advice, do this, do this, maybe do this thicker, uh, maybe try this or try that. So I think there was that mechanism um, in traditional societies, which maybe now we don't, uh, we don't necessarily have. And do you think your, your role in Unity Family Services is kind of almost providing that, but in a... I th- I, well, th- this is what I'm saying. So I think, the f- I think there's a couple of factors. One is that I'm a man. So for men coming forward, I mean, women come forward because... They just recognise the issues. A lot of times, um, they want their husband to come. So, and we've kind of talked about why it's difficult for men in all communities, all societies, to come forward. So, naturally, probably more women contact me in that sense. But do men do come forward and say, "Look, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I've tried this. I tried that. What should I do?" And I think the fact is, I'd, I'm I'm quite sure that part of it is the fact I'm a man and also I'm a scholar. So. That, that that kind of traditional idea where they'd go to the murabi mm. to get that kind of practical advice, but also maybe spiritual advice. Yeah. Um, I think they're coming for both of that. And so, alhamdulillah, I mean, it's a good opportunity. Mm. I can I can talk to people. Um, they can offload. Um, you know, I'm quite direct, so I don't mess about. I just get straight into the heart. I ask, ask, do ask difficult questions. Um, but by asking those direct, difficult questions, you can tend, sometimes get to the Part of the issue, uh, which sometimes other other people find it difficult because yeah. people people don't want to open up. And do you think do you think it helps that they might feel that they're less likely to be du- judged by you? Where in 
in other circumstances they might not like you know with peers friends yeah I think the, thing, the other thing is that it's quite clear I make it quite clear that it's confidential mm. so whatever they say to me it will remain with me um, and even like their spouse if, if like uh, if I'm dealing with a couple or something speak to them separately okay. because there's certain things they might not want to say in front of the other person mm. and then I'll actually ask their permission to say like well this particular point can I talk about it when your spouse comes in or do you want me to keep it um, you know, to, yeah. to ourselves and sometimes they'll say no keep it to ourselves right. so they're happy with me to know but they don't want their say for example their spouse to know so I think um, it's really important to have that non-judgmental confidential um, space where where uh, people can people can go Shay, when you get the couples coming to you do you often get the case where the woman, uh, the wife will say that the husband is not manly enough or not strong enough or not providing or not taking responsibility. Because uh, I guess that links into our idea of this chivalry and masculinity. Mm. I don't uh, think, is that a criticism yeah. that is you're finding on a day-to-day I, I, basis? No, not, I wouldn't say that they, they say that he's not manly enough. Um, they will sometimes complain about if he's not filling, fulfilling his responsibilities as a husband financially or like as a father. Um, but um, it's more to do with that rather than like the manliness. I think I can count a couple of cases where they actually did say he's he needs to man up or he's not manly enough. But um, that that's to more to do more with that per, that guy's personality and also the, the sister's personality as well. So not really a trend or anything. I don't think as a I don't think as a trend. No, I think there is a case of um, a significant number um, that maybe um, financially. Um, don't fulfil their responsibility as they should and it, it might not just be in the marriage it might be after marriage so like the ex-husband's not for maintaining the children um, which is his responsibility and obviously you know we, we can there's only so much we can do that the, the, the law of the land will prevail mm. um, but there is that kind of you know you get these kind of this, these people who try and hide their assets or try to declare less so they don't have to give as much maintenance which is uh, quite sad because it's their own children that you know get deprived out of that. So then, what what you know, going back to Aman's question, so what is chivalry then in in the Islamic context? What does that mean? Because I mean, it was one of the things we talked about yeah. in episode two, I think it was. I think chivalry for us, I mean, the Arabic is fatuwa. Um, it's actually quite a difficult term to translate, um, but it's it's really all about bringing the best out. No, as I'm saying, I'm thinking of that jelly advert now. <laughs> <laughs> best the man, best can. man can get <laughs> the best. Subliminal the best brainwashing the there for the last thirty, forty years. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, I think it's getting the best out of of, of people. So it's not just a a, a necessarily man thing, um, but it's about getting the best out of people. Um, basically, all the honourable qualities, and the honourable qualities are not just strength and um, you know justice it's not the kind of those qualities but also qualities like humility generosity kindness which are all obviously we see in the Prophet so these are all given that value as well so this term um, or concept is it same for women or is it something parallel for women as well um, I don't think it's specific to I don't think it's specific to women um, it, it, te- it generally tends to tie into general good character uh, I mean, there's, there's obviously hadith about akhlaq. There's one, the heaviest thing on the scales in the day judgment is the taqwa of Allah and good character, husnul khuluq. Um, so it's about basically um, people pushing themselves to all these kind of 
uh, amazing attributes that people of the past embodied. People like Abu Bakr, people like Omar, who are just part and parcel of them. How can we revive those same uh, amazing qualities? So they had the quality of justice, but at the same time, they had the quality of humility. They had the, you know, uh, so there was like basically a balance. It wasn't just one way or the other. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to mention Ertugul again. I think I've mentioned <laughs> him in every, every episode. But I think one really thing I like in Ertugul is how the women are portrayed. So the women are not portrayed as these frail, you know, um, women who are like dominated by men. Um, but they're actually portrayed as quite strong and they do speak their mind. Um, so if you look at like Ertugul's mother, she becomes the leader at one point of the tribe. And even though when she's not the, the leader, she does still speaks up against men. And, and you know, and when they're when they're in their their kind of training, the the women are training as well, they're you know, firing bows and they're fighting with each other and they've all got little daggers. And if, if they get they get attacked, you see these Muslim women fighting like the Mongols and killing them and stuff. I mean, it's like it's amazing, like, you know, just to see like okay, one minute she's holding a baby, next minute she's got a sword out and she's fighting with a man. Um, so I think um, I, I think that's a that, the, the reason I think that's a really good program because it it embodies a lot of these kind of um, attributes of being strong, being just, but being humble at the same time, being kind, being gentle. Um, and so I think um, um, all of that is really good, and they also contribute to the economy. So they're, they, you know, the weave, the the carpets, and mm-hmm. they sell that. And so there's this this kind of um, synergy between the men and the women going on. They're kind of helping each other, living together. Um, there's not this kind of um, a humiliation of one sex over the yeah. other, or anything like that. Um, so I think um, that is a really good example for for young people to watch and see. Look, this is how an Islamic society. Um, should be mm. in terms of like you know to cultivate those kind of virtues I guess how, how where does discipline fit into that kind of picture especially at, you know at the different stages of when we're raising boys specifically because this is a show about raising uh, the next generation of men and boys how do, how do you go about disciplining at the different stages Sheikh? I think I think disciplining um, uh, there's obviously different facets to the disciplining um, I think this is why the traditional martial arts are very good to teach children because not only do they get taught how to defend themselves, confidence, but they also get taught discipline, self-discipline. In fact, um, a really amazing um, thing I heard was um, uh, Dr. Omar Farouk. He was talking about some guy in, I think, Malaysia or Indonesia who does Aikido, and he'd actually started to rehabilitate um, um, radical uh, extremist guys through Aikido. Um, so just through the discipline, you know, uh, subhanAllah. So I think there's a lot a lot we can take from that. Um, so I think things like that we should be obviously encouraging our children. In terms of uh, disciplining, in terms of like at the different ages, there is a hadith, that hadith about at seven, encourage them to pray at ten. Um, you know, if they don't pray, then you should use a bit of physical um Aid, let's say, um, but I think if you if you look at the Prophet Sallam's example, we, we what we know is that he never used any physical discipline with um, anybody, even with children. So the higher way or the Sunnah you could say is to be able to discipline even your 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 boys without physically having to discipline them, um, and that's obviously it's quite um, challenging. But I think um, the fact that the Prophet Sallam did it, and is that hadith of Anas. 
who said that I served the Prophet for 10 years and he never said to me once, why, did, why didn't you do something or why did you do it? So how did he manage to do it? How did, how did he just through words, through his behavior, manage to get people to do things? And I think that's the secret we have to kind of really think about. Rather than us getting frustrated and shouting and things like that, we have to think of, okay, what are the other ways we can actually um, get children to do things without necessarily having to resort to physical yeah. discipline? And it's obviously the context that we live in, in terms of the legal laws of the land as well. And, yeah. you know, um, um, we see where that often goes too far in terms of emotional and physical and sexual neglect and abuse of children as well. So I think everyone is very sensitized to, you know, making sure protecting children as much as possible. So it's finding these other ways from, from the sunnah, etc. Amongst the kind of, you know, talking about this episode specifically, we're looking at men and their, their role in Islam and especially in the household. So, Sheikh, what are the roles and responsibilities of, you know, a man as he goes through the different, his different roles, I guess, uh, you know, in the context of being a son, a husband, a father? What are those roles and responsibilities, Sheikh? Um, I think as a son, it's it's basically, as we know, Bir uh, al which I mean, it's not just specific to a son, it applies to a daughter as well, which is um, being obedient to... Um, their parents and that that also needs to be a bit explained because some people um, tend to understand that as uh, absolute it's not absolute because obviously we know that if your your parents tell you to do something which is impermissible in sharia you're not allowed to follow them so common thing when it comes to marriages is um, if um, if say the mother uh, told her son to to uh, throw his, his wife out of the house or something like that so, I mean, obedience is not complete, but obviously in the lawful, you should, um, a son should strive his best to serve his parents to the best of his ability um, and just fulfill whatever uh, they've, they've kind of asked um, uh, him to do. And then as a, a husband, uh, obviously he has the responsibility of his uh, wife and his children. So he is ultimately responsible for them. He's ultimately responsible for um, financially um, supporting them, but also their tarbiyah as well. So a lot of the times um, people think that it's just, okay, I, 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 I work, I pay the bills, that's it, I've done my job. That's not, your, that's not you, that's done, you've done part of your job, but not the full job, um, because the, the other aspect of it is tarbiyah. In fact, they even say he, it's his responsibility to make sure that they have knowledge of, of their faith. In fact, there's a hadith I heard um, the other day. I was listening to one, one of my teachers um, uh, giving a, a talk, and he, sa- and he said that there's a hadith that um, after shirk, the worst sin a man can do is to um, neglect his the spiritual needs or the Islamic needs of his family. So, you know, somebody who's neglectful, um, of the spiritual needs and Islamic needs of their family will be held to task in the hereafter. So that's a massive responsibility. Um, and we know, for example, there's a hadith that um, the best thing a, a father can teach or a father can do for his child is to teach him good manners. Mm-hmm. So it's not getting him the, the, the latest um, video game or the best you know, uh, designer shoes or whatever. Um, it's about teaching him good mannerisms how to behave, um, good etiquettes, good values. Um, and so, I mean, I've gone, I've kind of gone into father anyway, isn't it? So, yeah, so that, that's the father's kind of duty is to, he's like the guide mm. for his children. Remember, everything that he's teaching his children, 
um, is is an act of ongoing sadaqah because if you teach if you teach a child how to read Fatiha, think how many times that child's going to read Fatiha in their lives for the entire time they're on this earth. So each time they read Fatiha, you're going to get the reward. So they they really are your sadaqah. They really are your ongoing charity. Um, whatever you impart on them, and this is the thing that people struggle with um, is to give their children time. But if they understood that this is my investment, just the same way that I'm spending all this time, I'm ignoring them because I'm I'm, I'm trying to set this business up. Business up. Well, really, that is your investment. They're they're the ones that are going to benefit you long after you go on. This business will last for this dunya, but that will be ongoing once you're long gone. So, the father's responsibility is to uh, ensure. Um, that his uh, children have been brought up to the best of his ability, because some things you know are out your control. You could try your best, and the children turn out to be, as they say, nakami, right? <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, if you've done your if you've done your duty, you've done your absolute best, and that, that they turn out like that, then that, that's you know once they become adults, it's their responsibility. And the opposite is true as well. Sometimes parents are very neglectful of a child, and they turn out to be really good. So, but the thing is, from from the father's perspective, he's got to put his best effort in and once they become adults then his role is to kind of just be a, a kind of friend a bigger big brother friendly kind of guide and guide them through and be kind of a, a, like a, a, a somebody that can just they can get advice from and, and kind of find their feet in life and you know you talked about the role as a, as a son and a husband and sometimes from talking to some of my peers who are, you know recently married that can be quite conflicting in some regards you know you can get competing roles almost especially yeah, yeah, yeah. to for you know when you put your mother in one hand and your and your wife in the other sometimes that can be quite competing do you have any kind of yeah i mean it is it is difficult i mean life is not supposed to be easier to, <laughs> you know, i mean life is difficult um and everybody wants their their wife and their mother to get along but um it's it's a, it's a famous relationship, the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. Sometimes it can work, sometimes it doesn't work. And you have to be prepared for both. And the guy um, can be right in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah so. very, of, very often he is in the middle. Um, but the thing is, um, I think he has to look at, okay, what is my duty towards my mother? And what is my duty towards my wife? And try his best to balance those two. Um, very often he, he tries to live uh, in the same house. If that's not working then it's best to move away. It's best to get his own house, have his wife separate from his mother. And that, a lot of the times, makes things a lot easier because if they're not in each other's face, um, then the conflict, the, 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 the points of conflict are less. And then it's just maybe once a week, twice a week, they have to come over and they can be civil for a couple hours. So that usually is a good solution if, if people are struggling um, to live under one roof. Um, but basically, it's about being fair, being just um, um, giving, uh, you know, like so when your mother is talking, to actually listen and say, okay, I understand, mum. I'll 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 t- I'll talk to her, whatever, um, and go back to the wife and and basically get her side of the story. But you don't have to really everything that your mum said to your wife, and you have to don't have to really everything your wife said to your mother. You know, you've got to be intelligent about that. Um, you've got to you've got to really that which is beneficial, that which will. Um, promote their relationship, make their relationship stronger. Anything that's going to be detrimental, you, you don't have to mention it. Yeah, so you'll be quite diplomatic in those... You have to be diplomatic. You have to learn um, a bit of siasa. <laughs> street smarts. <laughs> but where do... Because most of, you know, most of this learning doesn't happen... We don't go to a course. 
nope. to work out A, to be a parent, how to be a hu- husband. Well, if I, they can go on a course now <laughs> with yourself, but, you know, people don't read books about how to do it. So I guess historically it's been about they just model what they've seen their own fathers do or uncles, etc. Is there something in that in terms of are people, you know, society moved on, we're not, you know, growing up in that extended household, we're not seeing fathers or uncles deal with their in-laws and stuff you know is that, is that I'm just wondering you know the, the same, this is a recurring issue isn't it and yeah, you just yeah. wonder you know, why and um, what's changed now I, you know I think look human relationships are are difficult they're they're not easy um, so I mean this thing of the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law not getting along it's not it's not it's not just like happening now it's been always been happening it's about how to manage it and I think you're right I think in the past um, they would have grown up watching how their parents watching their uncles watching how and the thing is there's also um, a kind of understanding of, of men's roles and women's roles it wasn't very um, you know it wasn't very blurred it was quite clear what men did and what women did um, and kind of everyone just kind of slotted into their their kind of role I think with the thing with now as you said just even the last 30 years Things like the extended families changed. Um, so many other things have changed, and maybe women have got more educated as well. They're working more, maybe than our parents' generation. So a lot of things have just kind of changed. I wonder whether the link with also being as a migrant community, because um, if you see, you know, Artural, they talk a lot about tradition. You know, this is the way things are done, and you know, we don't go against tradition, and they don't have to keep explaining what is it, but just the fact that it's against tradition is enough for them to check back in line. And I guess we're growing up in a society where, you know, we don't have that precedence, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, uh, you know our, it's not too far away where, you know, our fathers, grandfathers growing up in a very different culture and society. So I guess maybe in 30, 40, 50 years, it might be different really in terms of, you know, a bit more, um, there's a bit more of a balanced culture that people can then understand and set of values. Whereas as Muslims in this land, uh, particularly for migrant communities, but as Muslims, still, still debating the issues about, you know, you know, you can't drink, you can't. How do you socialize with other people and work and colleagues and you know it's that whole identity issue, which is still mm. an issue. And I wonder whether that also has an influence as young boys growing up, or young men or young husbands, you know, who's what model they are they following their peers or the what wider society which is saying actually um you know the value of parents is is minimal now you know you you don't have an obligation to parents um as much you know, there's no expectation whereas our you know for, particularly from uh, migrant communities you know back home it was very much about you know you respect your elders grandparents they're a blessing you know you spend time with them you care for them um and you know you, they're all part of your day-to-day life so I think I wonder whether we, as a community we're kind of navigating all of that as well, and that is where it's leading to that confusion for young people because or people growing up, men and women, that, that they don't have those role modeling that they can do because we're not still you know our generation is still navigating a lot of mm. these issues. So I, I don't know what you think, Abdul. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're 100 percent right. I think we're quite early on, almost in the kind of embryonic stage of yeah. of actually finding our. F- finding our feet almost and yeah I think it will be I think it will be a slow thing right where we we have to adapt to the culture that we're in although you know 
sometimes it's like even for myself as a well, I'm like third, second generation or something like that, and seeing what my kind of um, Scottish, native Scottish counterpart is like and how they, you know, speak about their mothers and stuff. I was quite shocked, you know, hearing some of this stuff. Well, even they yeah. call the, you know, the parents and their aunties and uncles first name terms. Yeah, exactly, which is pretty... And it, John or auntie right. or... <laughs> yeah. who, who's this talking about your friend? And goes, yeah. no, that's my auntie or my uncle. But or that is slowly, that's slowly kind of... Um, going through like it's seeping into do you think the so migrant community as well you have like you know especially when you you know when you're in some of those when you're not in those kind of central hubs of migrant communities I think when you go to you know places that are a little bit further out you'll find that yeah they start adopting that and I've I've, I've witnessed that and the you know as a, as a as a high school tutor the mothers have said to me like you know, he said this to his Quran teacher he calls he calls her by her first name and you know can you you know put something, like, you know, yeah, sm- yeah. slap some sense into him. And it's, it's difficult to do because that's the kind of experience that they're having. That's so what's your sense? We were talking about disciplining earlier on. And, as, and, you know, you talked earlier on also about this idea of tutoring and mentor. I guess mentoring yeah. is, is, a, is a key aspect. What is your experience of this idea of disciplining or from how do these young people learn? Where do they learn from these mentors or... I mean, the age that I get them at, you're talking about anywhere from 14 to about 17. So I think at that stage, you, you've you got to connect, first of all, before because you could just come in and just try to discipline. Um, but connecting first, you know, and actually getting to know them, and then you can just be very frank with them. And I, and I think they're quite responsive because ultimately, they, I think if you try to t- treat them as adults at that age they'll respond really well to it. It's just that nobody really does because in school they're still seen as children. At home they're still seen as Which age are you talking about? I'm talking about roughly about 14 to about Mm. 17. You know, when they're sitting their hires and they're they're still going through a lot of stress at that time as well. And I think they're quite receptive to being treated as adults as well. Um, I mean, I still see myself as that age for whatever reason. So I I try to connect Mm. on that level and then... But I do think I'm able to, you know, creep in a little bit of discussion of discipline. And sometimes you're talking to students that don't have a good connection to faith at all. And sometimes that can be just through that, you know, Islam can come up. And a lot of times I find that they're very receptive to hearing somebody who's a little bit separate. And what's your sense in, in, in terms of where the community is at? Because when I was growing up, there was this real value in when I was involved with things, organizations at that time the things like young Muslims so slightly older brothers kind of who were taking you for circles and you kind of learning and it was a safe space to ask stuff that you wouldn't naturally ask family yeah. and then that's a natural thing um, I don't know both of you and Sheikh and Abdul do you th- feel there is still those avenues and supports for young people now that they can go um, in the Muslim community to find you know to, to socialise because it seems to be a lot happening in Glasgow there's loads of activity I'm not sure where it's 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 focused in the right areas so are there enough youth clubs are there enough uh, you know interaction with young people you know for young people to go and find these role models and mentors and stuff and um, Stad Shokat was kind of commenting on some of this in one of the previous shows but I just wonder I don't know are, are we in better off now because you know 
we know that social media is supposed to make you more connected but we also know that it's a very false engagement and not a face to face so are there is, is glasgow full of vibrant youth clubs organizations mosques youth centers cuz on on facebook it looks like there's loads happening but i'm not sure if it's hitting the spot so. um there is a lot of events uh, as you say they seem to be um quite similar like a lot of charity events um which is a certain age that the people can get involved um but i think for the kind of younger age between like kind of what you're talking about 14 to 18 i, I think there's a lot more that can be done um a lot of, i think that's what shock it was saying as well that shock it was saying that day that um there needs to be more spaces for these people um that they can go and i mean this is and it's not something new i mean i remember this is, I mean, I'm trying to think now, it's probably 20 years ago maybe, or yeah, just about 20 years ago, Imam Zaid Shakir came to Glasgow and I can't remember, somebody asked him this question. He said that 20 years ago, mm. you should have like a centre next to the mosque where you just have like pool tables and tennis, you know, uh, ping pong tables and, and basically a lot of like activities. Kids can come, young children, young uh, adults can come, they can enjoy themselves and then you know, you add in a little reminder, you give them a little reminder, you get them to pray together. Um, that was 20 years ago. I still to see that happening. Because um, mainstream, you've got loads like the Princess Trust, Duke of yeah. Edinburgh. Yeah. There's lots of very established, organised programmes which seem to be for young people yeah, to teach yeah. and skill, upskill them. But So what, why isn't it happening, Sheikh? No, <laughs> are you asking me? Why, why, why did we start Monday, not Tuesday? Uh, <laughs> Just asking all these why. Uh, I think or reflections um, on why you think I, I, it's not happening. I think um, we, and I think this is what Stad Shocker was talking about. I don't think we understand the challenges that young people are facing. I mean, I've had parents come to me um, and say to me, Sheikh, my my son doesn't believe in God anymore. I don't know what to do. Um, you know, so I think if they understood that, that we're actually heading for a, we're in a crisis, we're heading for a crisis, um, then I think maybe they'd be a bit more um, uh, perceptive to like kind of understanding what's actually happening. And maybe then we would have a, a few more events. I mean, I've never heard of, have you ever heard of, a, I mean, plenty of charity events for stuff abroad. Have you ever heard of a charity event for a youth club in Glasgow? I've never heard of a charity event. Um, the, apart from a couple of things here and there and it, it tends to be around football or a sport, sport yeah. um, but there's, there's not much any there's, there's not much more creativity than that okay young people would like sport let's, get, let's do a wee sport tournament then what yeah. um, sports tournament great had a sports tournament and then what was where's the where's the development where's the tarbiyah mm-hmm. are young people um, do they feel comfortable going to to the mosque uh, are they welcomed in the mosque are they given a safe place in the mosque? Um, are they frowned upon? Are they told to get out? Are they told to be quiet? Um, I mean, just at the beginning of Ramadan, I put up a post from one of my colleagues, Sheikh Muhammad Aslam, who does Tarawih prayers in, in, in Birmingham. He does short Tarawih prayers because because uh, of the months. And um, this year what he did was he um, he hired like a bouncy castle and all this kind of, you know, the fun kind of stuff for the weekends because he wants he wants young young people to come in so you know parents to come in young people to come in he wants them to enjoy that experience the religious experience has got to be connected to fun enjoyment positivity so i personally don't think there's enough 
um, being done for for the youth. There was a camp I went to about a month ago before Ramadan, and um, they were telling me I was just talking to the organisers, and they were saying we're struggling for for funds. We don't have the money to pay speakers and things like that. And um, my talk was about uh, it was about this hadith of the the the, the people are shaded under the seven shades and. Mine, I was talking about the part about the young person who grew up in the worship of Allah and um, you know that just is indicative to me that these kind of endeavours nobody's giving them importance because they should not be struggling for money people should be throwing money at them um, or they should be able to tap into the community and there's plenty of money in the community uh, plenty and plenty of money uh, I know uh, somebody in the charity sector from down south at a private meeting and um, and he said to me, trust me, he goes, I do the accounts for many mosques in, in in the UK and there's a lot of money, right? So the money's there, but it's about what we think is a priority. We see Rohingya as a priority, China as a priority, Saudi as a priority, and rightly so. However, we have serious problems in our community. We've got, we've, I mean, we have a serious drug problem. Our prison population uh, in the UK is 15%. I mean, we're only 5% of the population and most of them are males. Who's actually talking about that? Who's saying, wait a minute, this is a catastrophe. This is a disaster that we need to all get together, stop everything else we're doing. We need to sort this problem out. Why is this happening? Why are the youth going into these kind of things? Why are they going to prison? What are we going to do about it? How much money are we going to put into it? Um, so I think, I personally think that the there's not enough understanding um, of this issue, which is why we need to talk about it more. And then what happens is the same people will come to you only when, my son's left Islam or my son's um, got somebody pregnant or this has happened, that's happened. When there's a problem, then everyone's chapping at your door. When you're trying to say, let's prevent the problem, um, no, we want to, I don't know, make a, a, raise money for a chandelier in the mosque or something, something like that. Um, so I think that we need to be talking about this more and more and really hitting home to people that this is, uh, if, if we don't do this, we're going to be collectively responsible. And I think, you know, one thing that I was thinking about when you were talking was the, 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 the see, if you look at Ertugore as an example, the influence that there was there for that uh, young person was limited. He was kind of limited by his physical space. If you look at um, traditional societies, they would have a mosque in the in the village. They had a question to go to the, the imam or the mufti. That was it. So their, their um, external influences were always limited. We're in a world, right, there's unlimited external influences now. So even parents, parents are struggling because they might be doing everything in their power to bring up the children, but there's so many external influences out of their control. And so all of that, when you're talking about the as a migrant community, we're dealing with identity issues, we're dealing with Islamophobia, all these other things, but then there's all this external influence, and this is affecting not only the Muslims living here, but also in Muslim countries, Muslim countries through internet through satellite dishes they got exposed to a different culture which was not theirs so they started watching movies they started watching all this other stuff and starting to, to um, implement it i mean I, I remember i was reading something about in um, one of these uh, arab emirates can't remember where it was but because they changed the diet from what they traditionally would have ate to eating burgers and chips they're starting to have all these health problems so you know the the, the, the there's so many external factors which are are inputting us all the time and it's it's trying it's trying it's trying to understand how difficult that is for young people and then us trying to make it easy for them through um, spaces like that 
And I think it's um, links into this, you know, very famous. I think it's an Af- African proverb that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. Mm. And though, you know, the irony of despite the perception that we're more connected globally with other people through social media, through WhatsApp, etc. Actually, people are quite selfish or insular a little bit in terms of if nobody wants to get involved in another family's issue. So I remember. Yeah. You know, I've I've never had an issue, or certainly growing up, um, you know, if there's an issue with my kids and you know one of the uncles or brothers that I've got, you know, I'd almost have no issue if they had to discipline them or they had to pull them up to say actually there's an issue here. Collective parenting. Absolutely, mm. uh, but this seems to be you know no everyone's scared to do anything and say anything. Is that if you see another you know your friend's child misbehaving or can't say anything can't do anything or it's not my business you know or I can't be bothered and so is that i it's you know despite this you know move that we're supposed to be you know you know connected with more people actually uh, people aren't taking that you know shared idea of you know it takes a village to raise us so what are the roles of a man in the household and what are his responsibilities and you know could you comment on that a little bit um, I mean, obviously, we talked about financial responsibility of the of the husband to um, provide um, whatever's needed in the house and so on. But in terms of just him being in the house, um, if you look at the Prophet's example, uh, the Prophet sallallahu when he came home, it's known that he used to split his time threefold. He used to spend a third with his family, a third on himself, and a third for Allah subhanahu wa taala. So I think that the idea, I, the, the, what I take from that is balance um, and giving everyone their due right. And this is the thing, sometimes people, um, they spend all their t- energy and time on the children and then they're exhausted themselves and then they get run down. Uh, you get the opposite, which is basically who just completely neg- neglect their children. So if there's a balance, you, you give your, your, your family, your children, your, your spouse time, you give yourself time um, and you also make some time between you and God. So um, that's the that's the balance that they have to try and um, achieve. Uh, so when they're home, they should be spending quality time with their um, their kids. I mean, it's, it's Ramadan, you know. I mean, I've got small kids. It's Ramadan, but the kids are kids in it. They they don't understand the, the impact of a nineteen hour fast on you. Uh, so they still want to play with you, you know. So um, by all means, you know, say okay, fine, I'll play with you in half an hour. So half an hour I might read Quran or do something. But then that's it. I said to them half an hour, need to stick to my word now. And then go and do something with them for half an hour. So they understand as well that, okay, um, you know, that there's that you can't have everything their way. But at the same time, it's important that um, don't neglect them. And, and I try and multitask. I was playing cricket with my daughter. So I was batting with one hand and doing tasbih with the other hand. <laughs> so uh, you, try and, you try and like uh, amalgamate the two as much as you can. Um, but you know just helping out just generally helping out we know the Prophet the hadith in Sahih Bukhari uh, that he was in the help of his family so when he came home you know he made himself useful so if it's if it's the fact that your uh, wife's cooking uh, you know you chop up the salad or whatever just ask what can I do can, can I do anything to it okay go and, go and uh, give the boys a bath okay I'll go and give the boys a bath you know or go and do this or whatever so you just basically split your uh, split the duties is, you're going to open up the next section yeah yeah so just is there anything that is an actual obligation that they must do like in, in the house there's no obligation in terms of I mean even, even for, for women they don't have to they're not obliged to do the domestic chores so um, it's apart from the Malikis, um, but it's Sunnah. So, 
um, obviously somebody needs to do it. So either you hire somebody or um, they both kind of do it. I mean, it all depends, isn't it? If, if she's working, he's not working or they're both working or he's working and she's not working. You know, we know that the Prophet Sallam uh, told um, Sayyidina, to Aisha, uh, Sayyidina to Fatima anha, even though it wasn't an obligation uh, but he said that because Sayyidina Ali was working out in the, uh, outside that she should help out with the domestic chores so this is uh, this idea of helping each other out um, so there's no there's no strict rules mm-hmm. uh, but it's just basically that that hadith of he was in the help of his, of his family when he was in the house so he just didn't he wasn't a slob basically lying about you know, water, right? You know, these people. Some ring some, a bell. You know <laughs> exactly. Massage. You know, they, yeah, they don't. They don't move and get anything. You get up to do anything, but you know, if you're gonna get a glass of water, you can get a glass of water. Mm. But I think um, it's just the prosum used to. We know that the prosum used to um, milk um, the goat, so he used to do that. He used to mend his own clothes. He used to mend his shoes. So. Um, I guess that you could you could do an analogy there on DIY probably <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing the doing the DIY in the house, but I think it's just um, it's just this general idea we have that a husband and wife are a team and they kind of help each other and there's no set rule of one person has to do this the other person has to do that, but it's whatever is you know easy for both to do yeah, and what works for you them. You know, in terms of. Financially, you kind of mentioned that obviously there's the financial responsibility that the man has. Now, how is that split in terms of in his role, in his multiple roles as a husband, a father, a son? You know, who has priority in that mm. with regards to financial? The first, the first priority he has is towards his wife and his children. So if if he if he um, if his salary didn't, didn't was not enough. For him to provide for his his immediate family, his parents, and say relatives, the first people that he prioritizes is his um, his wife and his children. So the nuclear family. The nuclear family. That's his first primary um, uh, responsibility. Then, uh, if he has uh, you know uh, enough, then he also, if his parents are, are poor, are in need, then he also supports um, supports them. But it's not just him; it would be all the siblings' responsibility. So equally whether it's male or female um, so all children are responsible for their parents if they're old and they cannot work and they're in need um, so obviously situation is different but if they were in that situation then they would all equally contribute okay and you know I think that, that's that's of course if the um, if they have the ability if they all are they're all working yeah, yeah. But if they're not, like, say, um, if some of them are not, some of the siblings, say, a sister or a brother are not working or are poor themselves, then it would be responsible and the rest only. No, and, you know, just as you mentioned about elderly parents, now what's, what's the responsibility there in terms of looking after elderly parents? Because a big thing is, you know, in this community that we find ourselves in, is shipping your parents off to a care home once they've reached a certain age. What's the what's the role there? I think the I think the the, the the what I would say is they're obliged the children. So it's not just the, the man himself. It's it's him and his siblings. How many how many siblings you have, or if it's just him by himself, they have to um, give their parents a dignified um, life, whatever that form takes. Now, it's always traditionally understood because we've never had homes. 
in the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. It's always tradition to be understood that um, that provision would be done in the home and he would get whatever external help he needs to look after the, the parents in the home. Um, but uh, if somebody did put them in a really nice home and they were looked after well, and obviously the parents would have to be comfortable and happy with that, yeah. that arrangement, then um, it, it it would be it would be permissible, but yeah. I would say as a uh, ideal, if 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 as a first step, it should be always look at looking after them in the home to the best of their ability. Yeah, yeah. No, because I've I have an example of a friend of mine who um, they they've actually got a, a their father is quite elderly, he's got serious dementia that's coming coming on, and but he refuses to go to a home and refuses to move in with them as well actually he's like you know living separately and that's obviously quite a strain um you know this is kind of separate would you have any advice for somebody that's got a situation like that where it's quite tough i think what 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 you do with that kind of situation is um try to move as close to the to the father as possible if the father's not willing to move in with them and wants to stay where he is then um, you know. End end the day, this is a person who has looked after you your entire life, from when you were you couldn't even do anything for yourself, right? So your parents. I mean, th- people sometimes forget. I mean, and again, now that we are parents ourselves, we realise how much effort and time <laughs> children take out of you, and you realise and you you remember those comments that your parents made. You and you understand when your parents one day, and, and I'm sure we'll say the same thing to our children. They'll say the same thing to their children. But it's true. Um, you know, you you give up a lot of your time, resources, everything for your children. So um, now that um, the, you've got to the stage where you need looked after, it's it's not. I don't want to say payback time, but you know, it's it's mukafaa um, in Arabic, like um, to to recompense. So, like for example, they, they say that the Prophet um, no one was kind to him except he was more kind back. You know, he always recompensed it. So. Um, you know, now that they're at that age where they need looked after, what I would say is to this person, if he can't convince them to live with them, then he, he what he should do is like live as close as possible to his father and basically just ensure that he's popping in as much as possible. If he's at work, you know, maybe his wife can pop in or the other siblings or they take a rota um, between them. Yeah. You know, if there's three or four of them, they all take a kind of responsibility to go over and spend the evening with him um, so that at least for parts of the day he's not by himself there's somebody there for a couple of hours and the thing is if you divvy it up among siblings then it's not too much strain on one particular person Sheikh if I can move things along to obviously one of the models in the past was very much as the male uh, uh, being the head of the household and also the primary breadwinner and this this has changed now in in this context now where um, you know, the wife might also be working in some situation. The wife will be the primary breadwinner now, or earning more than the than the male, um, than the husband. Um, and I think that can actually lead to self-esteem issues as well for the husband, depending on the context of how that is and how that's arranged and and, and the nature of the individuals. But from an Islamic perspective as well, where do we balance that in terms of the household finances, and responsibilities financially? Where now, you know, we have either, you know, both, you know, couples working or the women might be the primary breadwinner. So where, where does that lie under think, that shift? Yeah, I think if, the, if, if, the, if, if both are cont- contributing financially, then it has to be a joint decision. It can't just be, it can't be the traditional role of 
um, the man because because that was linked to the fact that he was providing, he's got to ensure everything's done properly. But um, if he's contributing and she's contributing as well, then it's a, it's a joint decision. They have to fi- they have to come to joint decisions about the finances mm. and how they should be how they should be spent. And what if what if what if a man doesn't want to, like doesn't contribute financially? What what is if he doesn't contribute financially, then it's grounds for divorce. I mean, she can, she can, she has a choice then to take that further and um, seek um, a dissolution of the of the marriage. I mean, this is a problem that because we don't have an Islamic system, um, we we can only give moral advice because legally there is no financial obligation upon the the husband. Um, so, in an Islamic system, what would happen is the sister would have went to the court and said. Um, he's not fulfilling his financial responsibilities, and the judge would just basically force him. Um, otherwise, he'd go to prison, mm-hmm. or just forcefully take out of his account. You know, no questions asked. But the thing is, because we don't have that system, then what are they supposed to do? They can, there's only moral pressure. So, really, then it has to come down to some sort of intervention. And if he's still not willing to fulfil his financial role, you can say to the sister, "Look, this is grounds for divorce. Um, it's up to you if you want to stay in the situation." But um, if he's not fulfilling that as a, as a primary obligation of his, then uh, you have to decide whether you want to stay with a person like that. So one of the questions that we had come through um, when we polled for the show um, was this one. So, Sheikh, if a woman is divorced or widowed, who is responsible for her maintenance? And does this fall to her fathers and brothers? Who has more claim to his wealth? Is it his own family or his now widowed sister and um, her family? Okay, so um, the first question is about if a woman's divorced or widowed. Um, I mean, the responsibility for a female is upon the the father uh, up until the point she gets married. Now, once she gets married, um, she the response financial responsibility is the husband's to maintain her. If she gets divorced um, after the idda period. He's not responsible financially for her, but he would still be financially responsible for the children. That financial responsibility mm-hmm. is always going to be there, but not for her. Um, so what would happen is they say that it would, if she's poor uh, and she doesn't have an income, then the responsibility would go back to um, the person who initially had the responsibility, which is her father. If he's no longer there, then it'd fall on her, her brothers. Um, or if the father was too poor, then it'd fall on the brothers. Um, but if she's um, got an income, uh, she's doing okay in life, then she'd be responsible for her, herself. Uh, in terms of responsibilities towards other um, relatives, like you had that question before yeah. about what, you know, where, because this is, this is a thing like a lot of men would possibly have responsibility for their own family and maybe their you know, uh, relatives say back home. This was a very common thing. Um, men would um, financially be responsible for families back in, say, Pakistan or another country. Um, the first and foremost thing is to understand that the primary duty of the husband is towards his wife and children. So the, he has to fulfill their financial obligation first. If after that he is financially able um, and if he had poor parents, um, then he'd be obliged to support his parents as well. But like I said, it's not just him, it's all the siblings. So if there's five of them, he would just contribute 20% towards their uh, maintenance. Remember, they would have a pension. 
So they may have some income, but if it's not enough to give them a dignified life, then the shortfall would be distributed amongst the five siblings. So he'd be um, possibly responsible um, if he's got the finances to do that. Um, now, um, when it comes to anyone else apart from apart from that, apart from his own wife and children, and uh, his parents, then it's a bit difficult. Then it's a bit different. It depends on whether they're male relatives or female relatives. If they're male relatives, like a brother, an uncle, a nephew, um, he's only obliged to maintain them if um, they are poor and not able to earn due to um, like a disability or an illness. If they're like in a situation where they, uh, in other words, if the guy's unemployed but he's just a lazy whatever then he doesn't have to um, provide for him. It's only if they're in a situation they're poor and you know they've got a disability which stops them from working, then he'd be um, obliged to support them, but only in accordance to the laws of inheritance. So um, basically everybody that would inherit from that relative, they're all equal, they're not equally, but they're all responsible to maintain that person in accordance to how much inheritance they would get from them. Because there's a qaida, there's a, a principle, uh, but it basically means that um, profit and loss. So if you if you if you're going to benefit from that person, which you would through inheritance, then you always ha- you have to reciprocate it. Mm-hmm. So depending on how much inheritance they would get from that uncle or nephew, they would contribute that amount only, and all the other relatives they would contribute as well. So it basically a collective, collective thing. If it was female relatives like a sister or an aunt. Um, a paternal aunt, maternal aunt then he's obliged to maintain them if they're poor the condition that they're poor um, and in need of of that um, irrespective of whether they work or not so even though they have, they're have, they not dis- disabled or anything like that they don't have an illness they can work but the default position is that women are not obliged to work so if they're poor and they're in need then he would be obliged to support them again in accordance to how much inheritance he would have received from them and all the other relatives in accordance to the, the um, um, inheritance that they'd get from him. If he's only capable of providing for his wife uh, and kids um, or his poor parents, then he would maintain his wife and kids first. Okay. So his primary ob- obligation goes towards his own family and then it goes out to all the others. Sheikh, you talked um, obviously responsibilities of a male in, in the context of the family and, and, and the obligations. Can I just take that, you know, widen that circle a little bit in terms of the role of the man in the community? And so men um, that are either involved in organisations or community work, whether that through be through centres and mosques or dawah projects or, or organisations, um, obviously that is a pull on their time as well. Um, so who has sort of more of a right over that man's time uh, is it the community because, like Ertrul, they're trying to achieve a higher objective, and maybe that always involves sacrifice, or is it at you know sometimes that can be at the detriment of what's going on at home? And I always remember this this saying somebody said to me once because he was talking about people that were very prominent and you know Islamically, and you know their own children were quite wayward, and um, the analogy he gave was it's like a candle that gives light to everywhere else except its base. And so, you know, you could be give shining that light to the whole world, but, you know, your own base might get neglected as well. So 
what are you know where do we how do we square that circle in terms of yeah. the responsibility and the cautions and how we manage that yeah so i think um um i mean we always go back to the example of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so the prophet sallallahu as we know i don't think there's anyone busier than him um but we still have amazing hadith about how he was in the house so he did spend time in the home he did spend time with his children um, yet he spent time with his Sahaba as well. So I think the key thing is is balance. Um, like you said, there's no point you're, you you put all your time and effort into the community and then you um, neglect your own family. That's not uh, that's not correct. But at the same time, just to um, to have a position where you're not fulfilling its its um, due um, is not correct either. So there's a there's a balance. And I'm somebody who my time is pulled between. Uh, my family and uh, the wider community, so I, I kind of uh, feel it myself. Um, I think what I mean. I, I, know, I remember one of our teachers, um, who's very busy, very very busy, um, and um, but one thing that he does is that he every morning has breakfast with his family, and he speaks to all his kids at breakfast time. So what you what you doing today, right? What you doing today? What's happening? So he he still has that fixed time. That he's with his children every day. So in every every day they will see him at least that one time, and he's going to talk. And it's almost you could flip it, and maybe in our context, maybe dinner time or whatever. But there has to be a time where this connect. And the thing is now, um, we're we're fortunate, unfortunate. I don't know, but because of all the technology we've got, there's lots of ways a father can do that. So if he's um, traveling a lot, um, and he's he's gone, and I know. I know Lots of brothers who um, work Monday to Thursday down London or something and come back in the weekends. You know, you can you've got FaceTime, you've got video calling. You know, you can call your kids. Oh, what are you what are you guys up to? Okay, have you done this? Have you done that? How was this? How was that meeting? How did this go? Oh, uh, your your teacher was saying this. So you can you don't have you know you, you can do things without physically being there through through that um, medium. So I think the fact is. You have to understand what is my responsibility towards my children. I have to ensure I don't neglect them, but at the same time, I've got to give time to my wife, my spouse, my husband. I've got to give time to my parents. I've got to give time to my family. I've got to give time to my community. So there's a balance. And the thing is, I've learned through my experience um, is to to basically um, say no uh, over time because otherwise it just kind of overtakes you. But do you not think is a case where? I mean, and I see it time and time again. It's obviously, we don't know the ins and outs of the, the particular situation, but there's some people you see who are just never home, right? <laughs> They're never with the kids, or it's very, very infrequent. And you just wonder: is is that you know, in a way, is that them avoiding issues at home? You know, and often you think about you know either you plow yourself into work or some other sort of outlet, yeah. And actually, all that you're doing is avoiding being at home yeah. because. There's issues there. I, I I would generally say if that's a if that's a common theme, I would say I would suspect that that person's not very happy, and they're in, in being at home because if you were happy, you'd just rush home. Because mm. um, even the word in Arabic maskan means the place of sukun, the place of stillness. So they don't obviously find find stillness in the home. So they're finding stillness in other things, other projects and stuff. So that's a that's indicative of something. Um, which is not quite right between them and their children and them and their spouse and that ultimately you try and avoid it eventually it will just get worse and worse and worse and uh, you know so what's the advice in those situations I think you have to um, um, say to yourself no um, 
I am going to fulfill my duties, whether they're duties I enjoy or don't enjoy. Um, so being with your family, if you don't enjoy that, I'm sorry, but that's that's what you signed up for. If you don't enjoy being with your wife then or your, or your husband, then you need to work on that and make that an enjoyable experience. Work at it. Um, people try to, to kind of avoid hard work, but nothing in life um, is achieved except through hard work. You need to work at it. It's not going to happen overnight. No one's going to come and solve your situation or make your situation better apart from yourself. So there's no point um, cultivating the somebody else's land and your own is 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 is, is nothing growing there. Perfect. So Jazakallah Khair, Sheikh Amr um, and Abdul Wadud. So I, I guess it, this kind of, we need to wrap things up for this year's Radio Ramadan uh, 365 for this show, Raising the Next Generation of Boys and Men. Um, Sheikh, if I could ask you in a minute just to think about, if you could summarise two or three key take-home messages from the last four shows that we've done about this whole area, I think that would be really helpful. But Abdul Wadud, I hope, while Sheikh Amr's thinking about that, um, I found it particularly beneficial and hopefully this will be a really good resource to revisit and listen yeah, to again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any final reflections I mean, I, from I, yourself? I mean, I'm just heading into a new chapter in, in my life as well, whether we weren't ex- expected on the way. So, I mean, I, I think I'm going to be listening back to this <laughs> in, in a couple of months and going, ah, should have, should have, should have listened here. Right? <laughs> so... Alhamdulillah, I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to sit here and talk to, you know, all the all our guests as well that we've had on the show. That's it's been absolutely fantastic, and uh, uh, I pray that I'm able to take a lot of the advice on more than anything. Yeah. yeah, and hopefully the idea of these podcasts in the last few years when we've done them is that it becomes a resource to go back to and mm-hmm. please to revisit some of these series. But Sheikh, the final few words to yourself in terms of key take-home messages in this whole area and advice uh, from yourself, please. Uh, I think, um, I mean, raising uh, boys, men, raising anybody is, is a difficult job. It's not an easy job. And the current world that we live in, um, we're facing um, lots and lots of different challenges, lots of external influences. Um, but I think um, if we can help one another, so I think part of the, the this the programs here has been just bouncing ideas off one another with different guests uh, amongst ourselves, and just seeing what, what are the issues, how can we possibly navigate them. I think this is part of the process. The part of the process of being an ummah, being a community, is that no one person has all the answers. And it's about a dialogue. It's about a discussion. Um, I know there's people out there who are struggling uh, with the, with their kids, um, but they need to meet like-minded parents. Maybe we need to have more discussions on this topic on parenting in general. Maybe we should have more parenting courses, um, regular courses, or maybe we should make it mandatory on people to go through parenting courses. Um, I think more of this can discussion, seeing what has worked for some people, what challenges other people have had, how they overcame them. Um, I think by helping one another, there's always a lot of barakah by doing things. And I mean, anything that we do in, con- in congregational prayer, for example, is more rewarding than praying by yourself because there's the, the strength in numbers. So I think if we try and face these challenges by ourselves, we're going to struggle. But if we share it, if we talk to other people, like-minded people, all get together, um, bang our heads and, and, and um, contribute whatever we have, I think then we can have a better idea. Because it is difficult times, but I, I don't think, um, you know, sometimes I think when we hear these words, it's challenges, these kind of words, we, we kind of get despondent. We say, oh my God, there's no hope. There is always hope. 
there's always hope. And I mean, Musa salam was brought up under the nose of Fir'aun and he became one of the greatest prophets. So even, it doesn't matter what environment you're in, um, you know, you can, uh, um, you can um, raise amazing uh, people. I think the crux of it really for us is that the Prophet's example, we need to really study the Prophet as a, as a husband, as a father, um, uh, as a companion, as a friend. Um, how was he as a person? And, and really try to see what are the qualities? How did he deal with things? Look at the prophets as well. Um, look at the kind of pious people in our history who have existed and try to follow in their uh, footsteps. So I think a lot of it is really connecting people to the prophetic model that look, okay, this might be our cultural way of doing things, but is, is this necessarily the best way of doing it? How did the prophet do it? And the prophet did it in a certain way. So we should be really trying to follow the, the sunnah and look at how he was. And inshallah, if we do that and we always make dua, dua is extremely important. Um, if you try to do something, I remember one of our teachers said something. He said, um, he was talking about this this um, particular place we were, we were in, um, this college. And it was this place that, you know, hundreds of, of scholars getting produced, females and males, had a very strong female wing. He said this started with one uh, with one, one student. He goes, he, he goes, the sheikh had one student and they used to sit in a brick outside, right? And then it became two, and then it became three, and then it became... And he goes, now look at this place. It's like a monster, basically. It's like a machine. But he goes, how did that happen? He goes, that cannot happen except with the tawfiq of Allah. He goes, that means that that person must have been sincere because the sincerity with effort and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept opening doors up. So he says, if you... His, his advice to us was, look, if you go into anything relying on your own ability you might fail and you possibly will fail probably will fail but if you go into it with Allah that yeah Allah I'm going into it but you're the one that's going to do it you're the one that's, uh, the, the help's going to come from you the tawfiq's going to come from you he goes then you always be successful because you're not relying on yourself but you're relying on the perfect absolute all powerful uh, house all uh, all things in his dominion thank you for those wonderful wor words Sheikh um, how can people find you online if they want to hear about more about you and find out more or stay uh, connected with your work yeah I've I've launched my own website amargmail.com so www.amargmail.com uh, if you sign up then you get regular emails from me um, and I write regular blog posts and uh, other things and uh, you can all find the, all your YouTube links and all, all my stuff all is there. all my stuff's going to be there inshallah yeah. so thank you once again for joining us um, we hope you've benefited please forgive us for any shortcomings and may Allah reward all of the guests that have taken part and any good that has come has been from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so jazakallah khair once again until next year assalamu alaikum Thanks.